afternoon good morning wherever you're tuning into uh, this latest episode of better place talking international law with me Jonathan Coley senior lecturer at RMIT University coming to you from a still lockdown Melbourne Australia wherever you are on our blue marble we hope you are all safe and well this episode I am rather nervous and excited uh, to uh, have our, our guest today join us, a genuine Nobel Peace Prize laureate amongst many other accolades, Tillman Ruff. Welcome, Tillman. Thanks very much, Jonathan, pleased to be here. Tillman is a professor of public health and infectious diseases from the University of Melbourne, which is kind of topical, although I'm not even sure we're gonna have time to talk about that aspect of your work. Um, his life's work is actually uh, in the realm of international law, I would pitch to you. He's a tireless campaigner for the abolition of nuclear weapons. And for that reason, rather than any particular job title, I'm honoured to have you here as um, part of Project Better Place. How are you holding up under COVID, Tillman? Uh, look, it's unsettling for everyone. And, um, you know, it's difficult, but there is a very clear purpose and, and we are in this together. And... You know, I've been relatively lucky that so far our illness has um, escaped my family, and and um, you know we're we're okay. A lot of people are doing it much tougher, so so I can't complain. But um, uh, it is a very challenging pandemic, and there are lots of lessons for us there. I think that that we really need to learn both to overcome the pandemic as well as address all our other multiple challenges, which essentially are all complex global challenges that we share and cooperative solutions are absolutely essential. Mm. Um, um, Tillman, let me give the audience a little bit more um, um, of a background as to your bio. Um, uh, we were debating beforehand uh, how long this bio should be. It could take the whole 30 minutes, but um, here's a brief formal bio of, uh, of Tillman. Um, Feel free to interject, by the way. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Tillman Ruff, um, AO, I believe? Yes, I got upgraded last year. Indeed you did, sir. Uh, an, a an AM was insufficient, was it? Well, I ha you know, you have friends and you have to be nominated for these things. And most of the time, you, don't, you may not know actually who does it, but, but it, all of those honours people should know are dependent on, on dear friends and colleagues actually nominating someone right. so it's it's um you, they can't nominate a particular level but that that's uh that's decided by an august committee but uh but yes it's it's a very humbling thing for lots of reasons but also from the point of view of the people who put you up i, I hate abbreviations ao or am um tillman is a, a an officer in the order of australia one of the highest honors um, that uh, a civilian can um, have bestowed upon them in, in Australia. And as he says, he was recently upgraded to that to higher level in 2019. And for that, that is for the work for in the pursuit of international peace and security, and in particular, the abolition of nuclear weapons, I believe. 
It was for both um, sort of contributions to medicine and particularly immunization in Southeast Asia Pacific region, but also, um, and the latter one principally for work to promote the abolition of nuclear weapons. All right. Um, we've been sidetracked from the formal bio. Um, Tillman is a public health and infectious disease physician. You are a trained doctor. You're also president of the, um, or excuse me, you, you have been, I believe, uh, president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, IPTNW. You still are? Okay. I'm a co-president, yep. Still Happy co privilege to share with a couple of other fine folk. And since uh, twenty uh, or since, since twenty twelve, and you're also the co-founder and founding chair of the ICAN, the um, International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Uh, in in twenty seventeen, ICAN was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize um, for their work in highlighting the catastrophic consequences of the use of nuclear weapons and campaigning for a treaty uh, to prohibit such weapons. Uh, Dr. Ruff has been a civil society representative on Australian nuclear non-proliferation treaty delegations. You've been a civil society advisor to the International Commission on Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Dis Disarmament, uh, amongst many other delegations you have been a part of. Uh, perhaps uh, um, most prominently in 2017, you led the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the IPPNW, delegation to New York, uh, to the UN General Assembly's negotiations and adoption of the uh, historic treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Um, and your fingerprints are all over that treaty. And we'll get to that. Um, this is a treaty, uh, the first of its kind to prohibit uh, nuclear weapons. Um, Dr. Ruff's clinical interests are in immunization and travel medicine. You've had 20 years of experience working with Australian Red Cross as an international medical advisor, um, and you've worked in um, Southeast Asia and the Pacific region, in particular, um, the promotion of immunization programs. Um, you've worked with the WHO and UNICEF, um, amongst many other NGOs and uh, civil society and international organizations. Um, and as I said, you are a, um, um, a member, excuse me, an officer in the Order of Australia and a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Hence my nervousness, can you tell? Um, I miss lots, but is there something in particular that I miss, Tillman? And a very proud grandfather of, of, uh, of two beautiful girls and one on the one unknown sex on the way. So oh, that's probably my most important job these days. <laughs> and we wish you very well um, in all that. Um, is there something not on the CV? Any, any personal hobbies or anything? you want to share? Wood, uh, you're a wood master, woodworker or something as well? I enjoy lots of other things. My sort of solace and retreat and sustenance largely comes from a, a cooperative farm in northeast Victoria where I, I used to have a couple of dearly loved horses that I, whose company I used to enjoy very much and have lots of fruit trees that I, that I look after. Oh, beautiful. Gorgeous. Uh, well, I hope uh, you'll be able to get up there sometime soon. And uh, it, it, I'm, I'm just doing a very important poll of um, international law practitioners. Your favorite ice cream flavor, please, Tillman. I don't have one specific favorite, actually. Uh, it depends on the quality of the ice cream. And, you know, I, I am pretty, 
pretty open, but I like nuts. So I guess macadamias would be hard to go past. Macadamia uh, ice cream? And a little bit of sort of caramel and chocolate flavours occasionally. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, Tillman, you mentioned that you're uh, perhaps most proud of, of being a granddaddy, and I, I certainly um, endorse that. Um, but but what I'm curious, what career accomplishment are, are you most proud of? Well, I think in as much as there's a, you know, a small fingerprint of mine on it, this, um, the treaty that you mentioned, the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons is, is, is the piece of collective work of which I'm, I'm, I'm most proud for, for the role that, that I can, was able to play um, in supporting, encouraging, pushing the governments that negotiated and adopted that historic instrument and in helping to establish the civil society coalition that became the key partner for the governments in that, in that process in, in, you know, in Melbourne 15 years ago, a few of us around the table. Mm. So that's my proudest uh, awesome. professional achievement. And, and we will definitely find time to circle back around um, to that. Um, if I may though um, ask, so you, you're, you're a doctor, not a fighter. You're a doctor, not a lawyer. Uh, and yet here we are on a uh, international law um, conversation series. I describe you as a person that does international law, actually a person that makes and creates international law. Um, does that sit well with you, that, that sort of description? I certainly don't claim any particular formal legal expertise. I mean, I have none is the, is the honest fact. But, but I guess working through the architecture you know which comes down to law which is uh, such a crucial expression of our collective humanity and and the rules and standards by which we live and govern ourselves and hold governments to account um, it turns out that in the nuclear weapons space um, this prohibition instrument that the treaty fundamentally is was really the only major achievement and the most significant achievement possible in, in trying to rid the world of, of these worst of all weapons of mass destruction without the active participation and will of the states that possess the weapons uh, because their elimination of course depends crucially and fundamentally on on those states that own them deciding to get rid of them and the current reality regrettably is that that's not the case that none of those nine states are serious about their more than a half a century old political, legal, moral obligation to get rid of these, these weapons. Um, so what's the best thing that the rest of the world could do essentially was the sort of point that I can reach fairly soon after its genesis. And it's clear that based on the very important history of the prohibition treaties around other indiscriminate and inhumane weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, anti-personnel landmines and cluster munitions in particular. Maybe you could add blinding lasers to that as well. Um, what fundamentally changed the game has, has been crucial to the progress that we've made on those weapons. None of it complete, all of it unfinished business, but has centrally involved a treaty. Mm. Um, codifying in international law, a standard to which all states are held, one standard for everybody. 
right. not the kind of nuclear apartheid that the South Africans talk about in relation to nuclear weapons, that nuclear weapons are okay for some states, but not for others. Um, that's completely unsustainable in a world where any determined government can access the materials and, and build nuclear weapons should they so, so choose. So what the rest of the world could do in relation to nuclear weapons was conclude the prohibition instrument. Right. Um, and so, to give away the end of the story, that was concluded in, in 2017. And, yes. Yeah. And now you're campaigning for... 2017. Yeah. And now you're campaigning for countries to actually sign up and, and ratify that instrument. So I think there's, there's lots of work around making effective use of that treaty now. But of course, the first crucial aspect is actually getting it into force, right. into legal force, so that it becomes binding on the states that, that, that join it. Um, and the obligations within it then start to kick in and meetings of states' parties, which the first of which has to be held within the first year to promote and facilitate the implementation of the treaty kickoff. A whole lot of things happen yeah. once that treaty enters into legal force. Yeah. Um, so the work of the last couple of years has been principally trying to build those numbers as quickly as possible. And I'm and pleased what are we to up to? Yeah. That, that we're currently at, at 82 signatories and 44 ratifications or accessions. And you need so, to get to 50. Isn't that and the magic hopefully number? there's a bit of a competition going on now as to yeah. you know to, as badge of honour to be in the first fifty, and right. certainly one state has already said they want to be number fifty. So <laughs> hopefully uh, not so, too many states say that now. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully that you know I think we've got reasonable grounds for optimism that that treaty will enter into force possibly even within the next month or two, mm. um, but certainly a very good prospect of achieving the fifty. Um, before the end of, of 2020 and then formal entry into force happens 90 days later. Yeah. So that's the principal work. But already the work of, of, of using that treaty to increase the stigma associated with nuclear weapons um, and to, to build the work of eliminating the weapons um, with divestment um, particularly is, is, is well underway already. And with building the kind of very broad uh, civil society support that we need to really give this treaty force. And of course, the more signatories and ratifications it has, the stronger its legal and mm. and moral and political force. So, mm. so we're not going to stop at 50. Um, you know, mm. this treaty really wants... There were consistently over 120 nations um, that voted for all of the measures that, and including the negotiating mandate that led to the treaties negotiation and adoption um, so one would hope that this treaty would eventually you know before too long get to well over 100. Right um, are there any nuclear powered sorry nuclear armed states that have signed or ratified the treaty yet? Unfortunately the sort of group of, of 40 odd states both the nine that possess nuclear weapons um, and the 30-odd member states of NATO uh, that have use of nuclear weapons as one of the underpinnings of, of NATO current military doctrine, and the other states that claim protection from US nuclear weapons, um, so that's Japan, South Korea, and our own country, Australia. Um, that group of 40 has been in a pretty coordinated um, way um, 
opposed, sought to undermine, and not participated in the treaty negotiations. Um, mm. And pretty much all of them uh, have said that they don't intend um, to join this treaty anytime foreseeably. And are they so, actively... Unfortunately, that there's as yet no... No, nobody's broken ranks of that group. But I think it's very important to, to make a, a very important point here, particularly for Australia, but also for other countries. And that is that this treaty does not prohibit um, military cooperation of a state with a nuclear armed state, provided that military cooperation involves basically nothing to do with nuclear weapons, provided you're not assisting in any way the possible use of those weapons, then mm. there's nothing in the treaty that prohibits military cooperation on other kinds of levels. So if right. the US designates 17 of its, of its, of its allies as, as its major non-NATO allies, and more than half of those voted for the adoption of the treaty, 11 of the 17. And yep. three, Thailand, New Zealand, and the Philippines have signed that treaty, and two, Thailand and New Zealand have already ratified that treaty. Right. And for none of those countries has there been any, any controversy, any fuss, any disruption, in fact, to their ongoing military cooperation with the United States because yeah. that cooperation, unlike Australia's and Japan's and South Korea's and the NATO members, doesn't involve uh, anything yeah. to do with being part of the justification for the use of or providing any assistance for the possible use of nuclear weapons. So, so, um, so what hope is there for Australia to sign up? I mean, um, I, I dare say the cooperation with the US military is very much involved with their nuclear forces in terms of ground tracking stations in the middle of our country um, and, um, and, uh, and whatnot. What, um, what are the murmurings you hear from Canberra about yeah, well, Australia's Australia position up? is is at present its formal position is is disappointing and deeply conflicted and and inconsistent um so australia claims to to support um nuclear disarmament australia certainly has a history of of support for some important measures in in, in nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament um our support for the comprehensive test ban treaty that bans nuclear test explosions in all environments. We were actually the government that took that from the Conference on Disarmament, where it was essentially negotiated but then stuck to the General Assembly. Um, that was done by Richard Butler, the Australian ambassador. Um, we have joined the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty. We're a member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, we certainly claim to support um, nuclear disarmament, but the problem is that Australia is fundamentally conflicted because at the same time, we claim US nuclear weapons are central to our security. Um, and indeed, not just central to our national security, but in the last uh, 2016 Defence White Paper, also key to Australia's prosperity um, is the statement. So it puts us in a position where we have very little credibility and you know, it's deeply conflicted. How can you be serious about eliminating weapons at the same time as you claim that they're central to your security? So mm. we haven't, in fact, um, supported this treaty because it fundamentally questions and challenges the legitimacy of, mm. of some nations' 
claiming some unique right to threaten all of humanity and all of creation with right. radioactive incineration at any moment. Um, so we take that further to the extent that we don't exclude potentially being part of the justification to use nuclear weapons. We might want the US to use them on our behalf. And more particularly, as you, as you pointed out, we provide uh, material assistance to the mm. possible use of those weapons through some very um, strategically important facilities in Australia, most notably at Pine Gap, uh, but also at Northwest Cape and, and, and a few others um, that provide information for nuclear targeting, uh, that provide functions in the command and control of nuclear weapons, mm. and that therefore are acknowledged you know, by multi-party committees of the parliament, for example, and, and by each government that has, that has followed um, the recent decades, that these are acknowledged high priority nuclear targets for any adversary of the United States. So that's a deeply conflicted position, right. both on the nuclear front, and it also is at odds with, with our position in relation to other indiscriminate and inhumane weapons. So we've signed up and there's really been no controversy currently about Australia having signed up to the Biological and Chemical Weapons Convention. We were arguably a real leader in the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, and we've joined the cluster munitions and, and, and landmine treaties, we've joined the arms trade treaty, we've, um, we've essentially signed up to every other major instrument right. around indiscriminate and inhumane yeah. weapons. So it is a real inconsistency that on the worst weapons of all, the only right. ones that pose the most acute existential threat that faces us, um, you know, we're on, we have take a different position. And it's that and dilemma, it's isn't it? Because it's the cornerstone yeah. of, of so many countries' security paradigms yeah. as well. Tillman, if I may... But, 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 but oh, let me on. just say yep. that, that there is certainly movement in Australia. And, you know, we've commissioned opinion polls that show that almost 80% of the Australian population want Australia mm. to join that treaty. We have 87 federal parliamentarians who've joined ICANN's parliamentary pledge that commits publicly their support for the treaty and for Australia joining it. The alternative government in Australia, the Australian Labor Party at its national conference in its most recent one in Adelaide in December 2018, it put into its national policy platform a clear commitment to sign and ratify the treaty when in government. So. And we have a parliamentary friends of the treaty group that includes members of the government, both Liberal and National Party, as well as crossbenchers and, and, and ALP members. So, so there is wide support within the Australian community. And I think it's inevitable that Australia will join this treaty. And frankly, the sooner we can get on the right side of history, the better. So Tillman, um, how did a physician get into nuclear weapons uh, banning? Where, where, where does that journey, that story start? Yeah, I guess it goes back a long way and, and maybe I won't take you all the way back, but, but really when I, was a, when I was a young doc, I, you know, it was the height of the Cold War and, you know, most of us, if you had eyes to see and ears to hear, then it was pretty, you know, there was a very widespread perception and real fear that, that this extraordinary rhetoric and this massive Cold War arsenal on high alert, ready to go within minutes of a decision to do so or of some accident, um, was really a you know a, a present and real danger. And 
you know, we bought the share in our farm in 1986, partly because we thought, well, if, you know, the worst happens, we need somewhere to escape from Melbourne to. And so that was part of our lives in the, in the early and uh, mid-80s. And then I heard a couple of really inspiring physicians, Bernard Lown, the inventor of the defibril defibrillator, and a very distinguished cardiologist and the founder really of, of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and the Australian paediatrician Helen Caldicott, speak eloquently not just about how, just how cataclysmic and, and catastrophic any use of nuclear weapons would be, but of this as kind of the final epidemic um, for which an effective health and humanitarian response was utterly impossible, even to a single nuclear weapon exploded on a city all the healthcare and emergency services in the world could not deal with that disaster adequately. And the simple sort of medical imperative that if you can't treat something adequately, then prevention was the imperative. And then the World Health Organization in the early 80s undertook two landmark reports on the effects of nuclear war on health and health services. And this very august body concluded, and the World Health Assembly, the body of every country's health minister, agreed unanimously that nuclear weapons constituted the greatest immediate threat to health and welfare of humankind. Mm. Well, if that's true, then where's the professional attention to this issue? Mm. That Then it's part of one's professional ethical obligation um, as, a, as a health professional, not just to treat, try and, and prevent and alleviate suffering and, and cure disease, but also to protect health and the factors that support health at a population mm. level. So this is essentially making the planet the patient mm. and all of humanity the patient. So it's a very clear health professional obligation um, mm. to deal with this in the tradition of public health issues. So I was um, really struck by that and felt that very strongly. But mm. And then emotionally, I, you know, I had a nasty cancer shortly thereafter and you know, thought my goose was cooked. So that kind of helps to make you focus on what matters and not worry too much about what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And also my daughter was born in 1982 and I felt this extraordinarily overwhelming, just, you know, as every parent does, this just unbelievably powerful urge to nurture and protect that life and this yeah. sense of responsibility that you have as custodian of that yeah. next generation. Yeah. That was a very powerful driver for, for wanting to do this work and, and help yeah. to make the world safer for her and her children. Have there been any frictions between your your role as, as doctor and physician and your role as anti-nuclear campaigner? Um, for me personally, no. I've, I've enjoyed really strong support, I have to say, from, from colleagues, from hospitals where I used to work that gave me leave to go to meetings um, in the university, in the private sector when I worked for a vaccine company. Um, no, I haven't. Um, and indeed, most colleagues have been extremely supportive. And mm. You know, I think it reflects the fact that most medical organisations and one, one of the key partners for IPPNW in, in sort of mobilising support for the treaty that I'm really proud of was, was getting the major international federations of health professional associations, the World Medical Association, 
the International Council of Nurses, 30 million nurses around the world, mm. the World Federation of Public Health Associations, um, together with IPPNW to sing off the same hymn sheet um, to the UN in all of the processes leading up to and during the negotiations saying this treaty prohibiting uh, and eliminating nuclear weapons is, is an urgent planetary mm. health imperative with United Health Voice. And I'm so most health professionals get this, but I do want to acknowledge that um, you know, working in a global physicians organisation, there were certainly uh, other people in, in more difficult circumstances that, that did it very tough. Um, we had an affiliate in Iraq and the leader of that affiliate, Dr. Al-Takriti, uh, was assassinated by Saddam Hussein's regime. Um, you know, we had... Um, for, for his um, for anti-nuclear campaign... As far as we know, all for his work, yes, campaigning against nuclear yeah. weapons in Iraq. Um, so, you know, there are people who've done it much tougher than I, and in a sense that makes me even more conscious that of the responsibility of privilege. Yeah. Um, you know, that I've had such a, an easy run, such favourable life circumstances, so many opportunities and choices, yeah. um, that part of my gratitude for that and being humble and true to that privilege is yeah. is actually doing what people in much more difficult circumstances find much harder to do because for me it's relatively easy. So for me that kind of strengthens my commitment and resolve because I know um, you know other people are doing it much harder. It's it's in some countries it's still very difficult and quite politically controversial yeah. um, to do this work. Our sometimes our our sister organisation in Pakistan. Um, some of the groups in the Middle East, um, some of the, you know, in China, it's been impossible to establish an affiliate of our organisation um, mm. because just the opportunities for civil society um, organising are much more restricted. So, so I'm very conscious of that and, and, and feel that as, a, as yeah. a responsibility for those of us in pretty safe and privileged environments to uh, you know, do what we can. I'm struck that um, by your comment about the World Health Assembly a few moments ago about a unanimous adoption, um, um, a clarion call for um, um, banning nuclear weapons, if you will, at that early stage in the 1980s due to the health effects. Um, as you know, the WHO actually asked the, the lawyers, the International Court of Justice, for a, an opinion about the, the legality of nuclear weapons as well. Um, and there's some shenanigans that lawyers do, but there are even shenanigans in the final decision. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with the advisory opinion, um, but it essentially sort of used legal mumbo jumbo to hedge their bets. And, and in fact, left the door open for the lawful use under international law of nuclear weapons in some circumstances. Um, I was curious, so as a, physician over there, international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war, really proud of the World Health Assembly. And then it comes to the lawyers part of the United Nations and our global system. And then we sort of, at the very least, you would say, don't have such a clear cut legal statement. Did that frustrate you at that point? Was that, was that any, yeah, any so way I, of I certainly, I certainly cut my teeth a, a bit in, in the sort of engaging with international organisations and international law through that very process because it was, I, IPPNW coordinated the, 
the campaign to try and get WHO to request that advisory opinion of the court. And then for various reasons, it, it got through with some very good advocacy by some, um, some wonderful people, and, but then got stymied, at the, but then was pursued through the General Assembly. Um, but the opinion itself is, yes, is a, is a mixed bag. I mean, it's got some really important bits that, you know, the nuclear weapons generally being contrary to international humanitarian law. The most positive decision was the, the obligation uh, to disarm on all states. And that, I think, is crucial, not just the NPT member states, where the Article 6 obligation to negotiate in good faith for, to end the arms race and, and effective measures to, to nuclear disarmament. Um, but that and the court made that decision that this was a universal legal obligation on all states not just to negotiate in good faith but actually to bring those negotiations to a conclusion and that being a unanimous decision of the judges um, is was highly significant i think in the best part of that judgment but yes look it was it did seem caught up in nation-state politics of you know some of the judges from nuclear armed states and I think it was hamstrung by the, in retrospect, by the, the lack of capacity of the court to have any independent sort of technical or scientific secretariat or advisory body that could provide independent advice to, to the court about the veracity of the claims that governments made. So some of the nuclear armed states, particularly the UK and the US, argued pretty strongly that there were circumstances in which nuclear weapons could be used that where they would not automatically violate international and international humanitarian law if they were used against buried underground targets in a re setting you know remote from distant from populations if they were used um, against ships on the high seas far away from population centers you know accurate low yield weapons um, ground penetrating weapons that where the radioactivity might be able to be contained. Um, the court didn't have the capacity to independently assess those claims. It had to take them at face value. And I'm particularly informed in this view by some remarkable conversations that I was able to join um, in Geneva well after the, um, the opinion um, given by Mohamed Bajawi, the the Algerian president of the court at the time, former foreign minister of, of Algeria. Um, and he made this quite clear. And, and so the court had to just accept that kind of evidence at, at face value. And then there was clearly some powerful forces and national allegiances that influenced the views of, 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 of and the behavior of of some of the judges, but the court didn't have the capacity to investigate the veracity of those claims. Mm. And let me give you just one example on one of those, the idea that radioactivity could be contained if a relatively small nuclear explosion was conducted underground. The US Congress actually commissioned the National Academy of Sciences in the US, um, this is a couple of years after the, the court decision, to examine that very question. And the National Academy of Sciences in the US is a pretty robust body that has pretty good processes of peer review. And, and um, you know, even though it's, it's a government agency and, and often risks, its work is, is cut out by congressional mandates and requests, you know, it does some pretty, pretty good work and, and that stands up. And, and they did a 
report on exactly this question. Was the, would the potential, could nuclear warheads be designed that where that would penetrate the earth so deeply that the radiation would be contained? And the National Academy of Sciences after careful deliberation and review of the evidence made it absolutely clear that that was not possible. Mm. That any nuclear explosion had a very high risk of, of releasing the radiation in an uncontrolled fashion in the environment. However, um, it was much, it was, and well, it was designed to penetrate mm. the earth deeply. So, you know, that's kind of evidence, proper independent scientific evaluation of the claims made was not possible for the court to commission or, or to, and so, yeah, that plus the nation state politics, I think was, um, if we had, if we had an advisory opinion, part two today, do you think, given the, the increasing weight of scientific opinion and, and knowledge around nuclear weapons, do you think it would be, and the changing geopolitics, I would uh, also add, do you think we'd come up with a different sort of legal pronouncement? I would very much hope so. Because at that stage, when the court made that judgment, there had been earlier work on in the 80s of this phenomenon of nuclear winter. Um, as lo like many good scientific discoveries, it was made quite by accident. It was actually Paul Crutzen, Nobel Prize winning German chemist, who when asked to examine the effects of nuclear war on the ozone layer, which protects us from ultraviolet radiation from the sun, figured out that, hey, maybe the, dis the smoke is gonna be a bigger effect than the ozone destruction. That then went on to Carl Sagan and others scientists in, in both Russia and the US independently confirming that even a hundred nuclear weapons targeted on cities yeah. loft millions of tons of black smoke high into the atmosphere where it would circulate the globe, cool, darken and dry the climate underneath for many years, decimate agriculture and produce starvation on a scale we haven't seen before. But that work was done sort of with Cold War arsenals in the 80s and, and right. sort of left. And, but around that time of, of, of the judgment, scientific work revamped the interest in climate because of global warming, increased um, the level of sophistication of our understanding of the climate and our ability to model it mm. increased by orders of magnitude. And it was by, by now we absolutely know um, by many of the world's best atmospheric scientists acknowledged by the IPCC, extensively published and peer reviewed, not seriously challenged, acknowledged by most governments reflected in the treaty, um, that even way less than 1%, half a percent of the world's nuclear arsenal mm. targeted on cities would produce a, a, a ice age conditions seriously ice age conditions mm. within a matter of a few weeks and that billions of people would be at risk of starvation. So we didn't know that mm. when the court made its judgments. And we also, I don't think understood as effectively as we do now that just the extent to which any initiation of nuclear use is highly likely to lead to mm. a rapid and uncontrolled escalation um, and of course now we have the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons so the international legal context is very different right so I you should flush it up again Tillman I personally don't think <laughs> everybody should have one under their pillow there you go uh, 
it's a very slim volume. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to read. Til, Tillman, uh, in the interest of time, let me push forward though. Um, you, so you already had a, an abbreviation uh, organization that you were leading, the IPPMW, but you decided one uh, organization was not enough. And then you went about co-founding ICANN, the International Campaign Against, uh, to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You founded that here in Melbourne, Australia. Is that right? We did, yes. Why, why the need for another why that? Because, abbreviation? Well, I think the penny dropped on the extraordinary experience of the international campaign to ban landmines. So that was really the first major civil society global disarmament campaign in the internet era um, that did a remarkable job of working with a couple of a growing number of, of courageous governments where initially just one candidate decided to take the lead on this and, and was then joined by others, Norway, Austria and others. But crucially, in less than a decade, after a process that had been stymied through the UN for, for years and years, um, in less than a decade was able to negotiate and conclude a new and quite effective international treaty, um, despite the opposition of the major users and producers. US, Russia and China opposed that treaty, haven't signed it, but nevertheless that treaty was able to be concluded and had a profound impact. Until most recently the Trump administration expanded the, the potential for US military use of landmines, until that very rec recent development. Um, every UN meeting I've, I've been to over the last five or six years, you would hear US diplomats often in the same breath as they would castigate this treaty as a threat to international security, they would boast their virtual compliance with the landmines mm. ban, a treaty that they opposed and haven't signed. So these treaties made a difference. So it was actually Ron McCoy, a very distinguished Malaysian obstetrician, former co-president of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, um, who proposed the idea that we need an international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. So we modelled it very much on the ICBL. So don't try and reinvent the wheel, don't create a new organisation with you know, representative governance structures. Build a nimble, administratively very lean civil society coalition, deal as many people in as possible into a very clear campaign with a clear goal, a treaty process to ban and provide for the elimination of the weapons. And we made a couple of decisions then that I think have stood us in really good stead. Um, we decided to make the basis of ICANN the unacceptable humanitarian consequences of the weapons and not so much engage with the political and security arguments for their utility and their use. Mm. But however you use these weapons, they have unacceptable humanitarian consequences and we really wanted to build a global coalition engage young people focused on a treaty and so in a sense this was an outreach vehicle of IPPW it was our gift to nurture and host this thing to take on the work initially of you know running the bank accounts staying the, on the right side of the law employing yeah. people setting up offices but ICANN is now a fully-fledged independent organisation and then letting it go when it's big enough to fly. Um, so that was kind of our gift 
And yeah. it was clearly the right idea at the right time. Never so for, been tried before in the nuclear space. For the next bunch of, of um, activists, for the next big issue, I'm curious, uh, have you written down uh, what you did, the, the, the practical steps in setting up such a wildly successful international campaign? As, you know, is there, a, is there a, a, um, a manual to set up an international campaign against X? One of my, I should say, my main immediate task is to write that book, which has <laughs> been somewhat delayed. Um, but yes, look, it's been told verbally. It's, uh, many of us have written bits of it, but it absolutely needs to be told because mm. I think, um, you know, from an Australian point of view, this is the first time um, any Australian-born entity has, has won a Nobel Peace Prize. But, and I think that's an important story to encourage and empower activists on any issue because, you know, like most things, it was a few people with a vision uh, who could work together, you know, with a plan and persistence um, that made this happen. And, and from little things, big well, things grow. Let me push you, though. Who funded it? in those early stages, we, yes, we, you know, and, and everyone's you got money. great ideas, but you need money. You need money, you do. And um, you need love and you need money. Uh, and yes, the, I, I'm glad you've given me that opportunity to acknowledge the wonderful work of the extended Cantor family. So Anne Cantor and her children, um, particularly Eve and, and Eve's husband, Mark Wooten, um, who, you know, took a punt, took a risk and invested in us, um, provided us initially with resources that enabled us to kickstart an international campaign, to travel, to consult, to, to, you know, try and excite people globally and to road test this idea, you know, did this have legs on it? Were people interested in this? Did this yeah. add value? Um, and to produce materials and resources and employ staff and, and get moving. That was crucial. And their support has been crucial to, to continuing the campaign. And, and it's extraordinarily rare, actually, for um, because it's not cute and cuddly, it's not fuzzy, it's not immediate sort of relief for demonstrable hardship that you can see in front of you. Um, it's the hard yards of the long-term advocacy because, frankly, it's only governments that can eliminate nuclear weapons. So the final common pathway for civil society action has to be to influence government policy. So, so yes, their support was absolutely crucial. Um, Mm. Um, um, I'm conscious of time so we do need to push forward ICANN has been wildly successful won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 got the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons um, 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 drafted and, and now out for um, signatures and ratifications I'm curious Tillman uh, you've been all over um, the world in this campaign against nuclear weapons what was more nervous being in Oslo to accept the Peace Prize or being in Geneva or New York for um, some negotiations? You know, it's really interesting. When you don't know too much, you don't get as nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, you know, very much the Bush lawyer. Like, it's the stuff I don't know about. I don't have to worry about. <laughs> um, I'm being facetious. But, but actually, you know, it's really interesting because I still get really nervous talking to audiences. And in a sense, I think that's important. And I'm exhausted afterwards. Yeah. And I think if I'm not, then I haven't given it my best. And I, you know, there's a, there's a, a level of it. You need a little bit of anxiety right. and stress to, to function optimally, but not too much to be 
incapacitated and finding that balance. Happily, I can sort of do more or less most of the time. But actually, the most nerve-wracking audiences to talk to um, are audiences at home when you've either got family or relatives or close friends (laughs) or particularly your teachers and mentors and elders in the room. Mm-hmm. those are much more intimidating than <laughs> talking to the UN hundreds of diplomats who, you know, who don't know you from a bar of soap. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I have a few quick fire questions uh, to sort of uh, r- wrap up this uh, interview. I'm curious, do you think international law as it stands today is adequate to achieve the goal of eradicating nuclear, nuclear weapons from our planet? You know much more about this than me, but of course my, you know, my understanding of international law is that it's, you know, compared with legislation at other jurisdictions, particularly at a national level, I mean, it's desperately lacking enforcement and implementation mechanisms, um, you know, and so much of it relies on, on the good faith and goodwill of, of nations on, on, you know, the embarrassment on reputational risk on being shamed you know publicly by un processes un committees investigations and experts um we really could do much better with with sort of enforcement mechanisms and the security council which you know so often ends up being the sort of where the buck stops is hamstrung by its by its you know its membership and the veto power so international law needs a lot more teeth Mm. but you know it's it's essentially in this world of nation states it's it can only do what nation states will allow it to do but but absolutely building and strengthening it is is so crucial because Mm. pandemics nuclear weapons climate disruption you know poverty inequality um all of the major issues we face require cooperative solutions and strengthening the rules-based order um, strengthening those rules and and their implementation and respect Mm. for them so um, for people who want to work in international law you know you you could hardly choose a more important area Mm. to work in at the present time and and is is ICANN going to shift from treaty signatures is that the next step in ICANN's evolution to, to think about enforcement or implementation? I mean, wh- what's next? What, you've got your treaty, you've got almost 50 uh, ratifications to enter into force, but the rubber hits the road with implementation. So That's right. have you yeah. given much thought as an organisation to what that might look like for your treaty and, and your little turf of international sure. law? Sure, and the, the treaty is only one tool in in the process of uh, towards eliminating nuclear weapons which has to remain the uh, the final goal because that's the only way that the the use will will reliably and durably Mm. um, be prevented Um, but the treaty is a very important tool but there's certainly still you know it's important not to sort of drop the ball before you kick a goal and so this treaty needs to enter into force Uh, it needs to then have robust processes to further its implementation um, the first meeting of states parties happily within the first year of its of its entry into force will be in Austria, a very supportive uh, government. Um, the treaty unfortunately doesn't have a body responsible, you know, 
people whose day job it is to mm. promote its implementation like the Chemical Weapons Convention does. And that's one of the reasons why that convention is so effective because it's got 400 people in The Hague, right. professionals, lawyers and scientists and experts whose day job it is to implement so, and enforce this treaty. We don't have yet that, that yet for this treaty. We need such a mechanism would be a big help. I'm for sensing an optional protocol. So, yeah, I'm, I'm for the countries that join the treaty, you know, there's work to be done in, in making sure that their domestic legislation is, is robust and strong, you know, to have good criminal sanctions for anybody with subject to their jurisdiction for, mm. for being involved in treaty in activities prohibited under the treaty yeah. should be powerful internationally. Um, working to delegitimize and, and hopefully uh, actually make illegal eventually investment in manufacture of nuclear weapons um, could be a very useful thing. One of the obligations of states parties to the treaty is to promote its universalization. So at bilateral, regional, multilateral levels, every state that supports this treaty needs to make it an active part of their diplomacy to, to push this. Mm. Um, and building the numbers, of course, beyond 50 will increase its, mm. its strength and weight. So there's certainly work to be done on the treaty, but then how do we use it in the nuclear dependent states and the nuclear mm. armed states mm. to really push the case for elimination? And that's a big piece of ongoing work to build right. up the stigma, to build the civil society support, the divestment campaigns, the, the educate the political alternative governments yeah. and future leaders about what they need to do. And it's and great to hear, Tillman, about the, the interplay between the international hard law, the treaty that you've got, but really that is just, as you said, one building block, one aspect of a larger campaign and it links to other policies and other civil society and government actions um, and human actions that, that, that can go towards that, 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 that goal. I think that's a, a really nice perspective on, on a, a really important treaty. And there's one important aspect of yep. the treaty, Jonathan, if I just can't stop yep. myself from wanting to inject, and that's that apart from providing a really comprehensive and categorical prohibition on nuclear weapons, this treaty's got a couple of other really new bits that are completely new in the nuclear space. One is victim assistance and environmental remediation obligation, yep. like cluster munitions and landmines treaties. Really important to make sure that the victims of nuclear use and testing will not sort of be forgotten and sidelined as, as they often have been. But the other thing is that this treaty actually... Is that, contain... Tillman, can I, is that retrospective? Are we talking about, um, you know, nuclear yes. testing in the Pacific? And, yep. and Ireland yep. is still suffering. So it's a really suffering. important tool for those communities that still have contaminated right. lands and suffer the consequences. Right. Um, and it's also got, it's only a framework because the detailed, verified, time-bound steps towards elimination requires the nuclear armed states to, to very actively participate. But the treaty has a very clear framework by which all states, with and without nuclear weapons, those that host nuclear weapons, those that assist possible use of them, to fulfil their obligation to deliver a world without nuclear weapons. Yeah. So, and it's the only internationally agreed framework to eliminate nuclear weapons. There's no plan B at the moment. Mm. So that's an also really crucial aspect of this treaty. At a time when other disarmament treaties, the hard one treaties that have constrained nuclear proliferation to date, the INF Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, possibly New START, the ABM Treaty have all fallen by the wayside. Um, 
the fact that there's a framework here to actually get rid of these weapons, and it's the only internationally agreed one, is really crucial. Tillman, um, uh, we could chit chat forever. Um, my last substantive question, I guess, uh, before we get on to some fun ones. Um, uh, what keeps you up at night, Tillman? Is it, is it in the space of nuclear weapons? Is it um, the misuse, the accidental firing off of a nuclear weapon? Is it nuclear terrorism? Is it nuclear non-proliferation? Is there a specific nuclear related issue that, that sort of really it's worries you? It's a widely acknowledged growing danger that nuclear war might actually happen. And we might not have the time to get rid of them before they're used. The most specific fear I have right now yeah. is that in the desperation for re-election, President Trump might foment a conflict to pull the nation together in a time of war and, and stir the patriotic heartstrings um, in a way that, that accelerates a probably inadvertent or accidental slide to nuclear escalation. That's mm. what worries me acutely right now. Wow. All right, let's shift gears, Tillman, because that's just depressing. Your heroes, and this is lightning round. Who are your heroes, the, the people that you draw inspiration and energy from? And please feel free to name names. Oh, there are so many. Um, there are so many. I draw on the wisdom of Albert Einstein constantly. Um, but the people who got me into this and who have supported and encouraged me, Ron McCoy, who suggested ICANN, a wonderful Mexican neurosurgeon called Manuel Velasco Suarez, Ian Maddox in Adelaide, um, people in the infectious disease um, area who kind of, you know, inspired me, teachers and mentors, Ian Gust um, in Melbourne, uh, lots of wonderful people. And, and of course, you know, family. Um, who've been there and support you. You don't do this on your own yeah. um, without support. All right, it's, it's not the Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, that's enough. Um, <laughs> but I think it's important to call out people, isn't it? Yeah. To, to celebrate our yes, heroes. Um, best book to read on, on, on uh, nuclear weapons or abolition thereof? <laughs> All right. Um, and it's only, it's only 14 pages. Best Best movie you've ever seen on international law issues? I might have to take that one on notice, Jonathan. Oh, I thought I'm you were going to say. I'm a great say... movie buff. And, oh, okay. uh, and my favourite movies have nothing to do with internet. Well, actually, they do. It's my all time favourite movies, it would have to be The Lord of the Rings. Lord of the... Okay. They've got nothing and to do with international law. And the ring is such a powerful maybe... and appropriate symbol for nuclear weapons. Like, there's so many analogies you can't use these things for benefit there there's go. so many analogies um, oh, i thought you were going to go dr Strangelove, sir but uh um i recommend that if you have not seen that um i have certainly seen that um your your favorite international law moment in history was ten forty-two in the morning on the 7th of july 2017 when this treaty was adopted do you remember um, where you were I was in the room. How I wouldn't it? have been anywhere else, Jonathan. Um, and, you know, the very sort of somber, dry, bureaucratic, boring, disconnected from the outside world, no natural daylight. You wouldn't know if it was raining or snowing outside. Um, when, you know, that all fell away and people were just 
uh, the the room erupted with embraces and tears of joy. And this is in New York at the UN this General is Assembly. In New York at the UN, yeah. And particularly having survivors, Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors, and um, and also nuclear test survivors from the Pacific and especially Australia, mm. um, and having the conference president embrace Setsuko Thurlow, the Hiroshima survivor. Wow. Yeah, you. I will. I'm. It's an extraordinarily emotional moment. It's a great moment. Um, two final questions for you, sir. Um, in retrospect, what do you wish you would have liked to have been told? What advice would you have liked to have been given as a uh, a young medical student at university that would have stand you in good stead, perhaps? I guess the, it'll be different for different people, but I, there were no careers in medical careers in abolishing nuclear weapons. So for me, in a sense, even though it's absolutely public health work, like it's core intrinsically consonant with public health um, experience, values, methods, uh, resoundingly, um, was hard to... The other medical work I sort of did alongside. So my day, day job was paid, um, was doing other things which was also kind of light relief from thinking about nuclear weapons. You, you get pretty bitter and twisted if you think about nuclear weapons all day, every day. Well, there's a, certainly a real danger of that. They're horrible things. Um, but I got pretty good advice. But I, I think I, you know, if I had been serious about building a, a sort of proper career, I would have probably got more formal training and probably done a PhD on, you know, radiation or something. But I, um, I just wanted to make a difference in the world and then, you know, having kids and getting sick was uh, got in the way. So yeah. I, I, but I have, I have really no regrets. I've had extraordinary opportunities and I'm, and I'm just so, so grateful to be, you know, alive and well and be able to do this sort of yeah. 30 years plus post-cancer. Tillman, um, and, and we are so thankful that you are, are doing what you are doing. Inter international law is three words from Dr. Tillman Ruff to describe international law? Messy, crucial, f to be used well. And that's all hyphenated, of course. Um, so it's three words. Dr. Tillman Ruff, thank you very much. Uh, amazing work that you do. Thank you for being a tireless campaigner for the abolition of nuclear weapons. Um, thank you for uh, all that work, for all the tirelessness that you clearly um, have for that work. Thank you for your substantial contributions to making the world a better place. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thanks for your time today. Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Kolieb. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present, and future. <laughs>